Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, George Papadopoulos details his role in the Trump presidential campaign and the Russia investigation. He's interviewed by Aruna Vishwanatha, Justice Department reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So maybe let's just uh, jump right into it. Um, your name became known to the world in October 2017 when Special Counsel Robert Mueller announced that you had uh, agreed to plead guilty to lying to the FBI. Now we're a year and a half later and you have a new book out where you say something a little bit different. Uh, maybe I'll just read a, a quick passage. You say, in talking about what you said at your sentencing, you say 99% of my statement is true. The 1% that isn't, unfortunately, the most damaging part where I admit to lying and damaging the investigation. I had to use those words and own them because those were the charges the prosecutors insisted on hitting me with. So maybe just walk us through how did you sort of get from point A in October 2017 to point B in this book? Sure. Um, that's a great question. So uh, I guess let's look at my situation and my sessions with the special counsel and the FBI from the beginning so that we could kind of understand that um, when I was effectively interviewed by the, inter by the FBI the first time, um, we were looking at a very chaotic moment. Um, I had been, uh, as I explained in my book, uh, there was a ruse that was used to get me to volunteer to interview with the FBI, and that was my interactions with Sergey Millian, who I did not understand what his effective role was in this entire investigation. Late so you <coughs> thought when, they came, when the FBI came to talk to you, you thought it was for something that it turned out not to be? Yes, absolutely. And um, basically, I think the FBI itself has stated the same exact thing. Um, and I get to the FBI interview, and this interview evolves into something that I did not expect. I had no lawyer with me. You uh, get in the car. I get you in the car. To, I get you down. drive into the, their office. I drive down to their office, and there are two agents there. And uh, they tell me, we want to talk to you about your friend in New York, who I thought was Sergey Million, and I had no issue going down and talking about this individual because, as we now know, nothing nefarious was going on between that person and I. Um, we, I then... The conversation then evolves into various disparate issues, including my uh, relationship with the Israeli government. I'm being asked if I'm being cultivated by Israel to work as some sort of spy or if I'm close to their intelligence services. You had previously done some work uh, in Israel. I had previously worked at a think tank in Washington named the Hudson Institute. It's one of the premier uh, conservative think tanks in town um, where I was doing what every analyst researcher does, and that's uh, look into events and try and articulate and fashion U.S. foreign policy in a way that we believe promotes U.S. interests. Um, I never understood that my work at the Hudson Institute and building various relationships and writing reports that essentially the Obama administration didn't agree with would actually cast a strange light over my head in, in terms of government surveillance. So it was your work at the HUD. You, you do mention in the book that um, they did threaten you with foreign agent registration charges, and, and that's what you were referring to, the work you did at the Hudson Institute? Um, I was, I'm referring to my professional career that has to do with Israel. I've never been involved as an agent or as a spy or affiliated with the Israeli intelligence services or even their government. I just happened to be a relatively younger person who actually had very high-level connections, not only in Israel at the political level and at the military level, um, but in various other countries. Um, now, I never understood, quite frankly, why the FBI decided that that w was a threat why they decided that they had to interview me during my initial interview about this particular issue okay. and in subsequent interviews. So about the, so we go and then we discuss that issue and then all of a sudden I have no calendar in front of me. I don't have my phone in front of me and we're discussing another issue, a complicated issue about Russia and in election interference, potential hacking, what the campaign knew, what they didn't know, who was involved, who was not involved. And it's at that moment when I tell the FBI that I never met a Russian official in my life, but this Maltese man named Joseph Mifsud, who now is at the epicenter of his entire 
uh, collusion narrative, old collusion narrative, I should say, um, told me in April in London, or not, I didn't say the date, that's actually, I'll get to that point later, uh, <laughs> I told the FBI voluntarily that this man named Joseph Mifsud told me over lunch in London that the Russians possess thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails. And I said, I don't know much about this person. You should look into him. I was dumbfounded by the lack of response from the two FBI agents in the Chicago field office once I dropped this bombshell on them. They didn't ask you about him? They did not ask me at all about him. They simply wanted to ask me about other contacts I might or might not have had. And I told them at this interview, he introduced me to Putin's niece, or a woman right. alleging that he to, to be, and I even gave the name Olga, and I told them I don't know her last name, but I'll give that information to you. Um, so apparently, because I've never seen the FBI transcript, and I haven't seen exculpatory evidence at all leading up to why I pled guilty, and this is part of what my book is all about, about government uh, malfeasance in my case, um, apparently, without a calendar in front of me or my phone where I could look back at emails or my records in real time, um, when they asked me, when did you meet this person? When were you interacting with him? Apparently, I mixed up my dates um, from when I met him 11 months before the FBI came to my house. So now, in your memory, you couldn't remember if he had told you that before or after you yeah, joined so, the campaign. So my life at the time was moving very fast. Yeah. You're <laughs> I, talking about at that time in the um, when you met him. When I met him, when the FBI was at my house, I had just left the inauguration a couple days before. I'm attending pro uh, parties with Reince Priebus, uh, talking about my uh, mm -hmm. potential position on the National Security Council. Um, you know, the last thing I'm thinking about is a strange meeting I had in London almost a year before. Um, I did my best to tell the FBI everything I knew about him. Uh, what I was effectively charged with after tremendous pressure, and that I'm going to your answer of why I pled guilty, of mixing up dates of when I met this individual. Um, and that's exactly what the status of offense states from the FBI itself. There was also the second piece of um, downplaying contacts you had with uh, this Putin's niece woman. Now, this is the the center of the issue okay. here in my case. Now, and exactly, I went into a plea with the government with my eyes closed. I was under the false assumption, because I was never provided exculpatory evidence of my innocence by the government when I pled guilty. You felt rushed into it. I was rushed into it. I was uh, on a holiday in Europe with my then-girlfriend in the summer of 2017, now wife. And I was flying back to the United States from Greece, going to New York, or D.C., I'm sorry, and I'm essentially violently arrested at an airport <coughs> by seven FBI agents right. without understanding what I had done wrong. Um, it was savage. In my, that's my opinion, and that's how I describe it in the book. So when they did uh, detain you at the airport, you did not understand at all that they thought you had lied to them? When I was initially arrested and I had handcuffs put around my hands and around my feet and I was thrown into the backseat of a tinted SUV going to an undisclosed location and my hands were handcuffed to a wall and I was provided with snacks and that the FBI <laughs> did not provide me with a telephone immediately to call my lawyers, even though I was represented at the time, um, I knew nothing. I was listening to FBI agents, as I describe in my book, sneer at me and tell me this is what happens when you work for Trump, this is what happens when you don't tell us everything about Russia, um, and we have two backpacks full of information about you. Let's just get this party going. We don't need anything else. So an agent explicitly just said to you, this is what happens when you work for yes, Trump. Yes, yes. And telling me, trying to initiate an interrogation without my lawyer present until I... Out of my snapped out of the days I was in, jet lagged, had, have not slept in about 25 hours, uh, just getting off of a plane, uh, mustered the strength to tell them, no, I want my lawyers involved right now. Up until that point, there was no formal understanding of why I was being arrested, as I explained in my book. I'm then placed in another detention center that I explained in details with, yeah. with people throwing up and uh, me scared <laughs> for my life. Describe chicken wings at 
that tastes pretty good. Yeah, and, and I have inmates who are talking to me about uh, how good chicken wings are on Wednesdays and how I should get used to eating them. Spicy, but they're mild. Other people like them more mild. The prison chefs are great. Don't Did you ever actually try the chicken I wings? I didn't, I didn't, but I, I had a couple interesting experiences in real prison later on, and I'll tell you about, about those, but that's further down in the story. Um, and I have other people who are talking about the Bible and why you should prescribe and subscribe to the tenets of the Bible to get through this rough time. Others were talking to me about their past work in the State Department. There was a hacker in the cell with us. It was like a, a United Nations of uh, of criminals, of, 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 of apparent criminals in this small detention center in Alexandria without me understanding what I'm there for okay. this entire time. Okay. Finally, I'm brought in front of the magistrate where I noticed to the right side of me, I noticed two individuals I did not recognize until much later. And they were Andrew Goldstein and uh, Janie Ree, who were two prosecutors for the Bob Mueller team. Yes. yes. At the time, I had no idea. And they told the magistrate, Mr. Papadopoulos is looking at 25 years in prison for lying to the FBI and obstruction of justice. Now, I didn't understand what I lied about. Uh, obstruction of justice, I had no clue. My head was spinning. I'm in D.C. Um, I go to Chicago. Um, the FBI agents were kind enough to take me to the airport and drive me and... And put you back And put me back plane. on a plane to Chicago. Okay. And I am told I'm not allowed to talk to individuals. So I want to disabuse this false impression that I was wearing a wire against anyone related to the Trump campaign or Trump. You do say in the book that they asked you at some point to yes. wear a wire. Yes, they did <laughs> ask me... Um, during my second encounter with the FBI. Um, and this is where the story gets incredibly suspicious and, and very, very interesting. And I testified about this particular issue, among many others, in front of the House Oversight Committee. They released your Yes, yes, and I'm very week. happy that they did, um, because that was all under oath. So, um, And during my second encounter with the FBI, they asked me to wear a wire against this mystery man, Joseph Mifsud, who four days before I told them had information that the Russians possessed Hillary Clinton's emails and uh, that you should look into him. I had not seen this individual in 11 months, maybe a year at that point, uh, and an FBI agent at Cafe George in Chicago's north side was asking me to wear a wire to go to London, have a sneak peek behind an FBI operation, and I'll get paid for it. Right. Um, now, I felt mixed emotions, and I explain it in the book. Yeah. Part of me was, I do want to be a hero, because why would the government lie to me? If he's, if he's a suspected Russian agent, of course the government probably needs my help. And that seems to suggest that they were actively interested in investigating him. Assuming that this was not corrupted from the beginning, which is the case I lay out in my book. And I explain that I, am ver I believe... Uh, Hindsight's twenty twenty, but at that moment, I could have made a dreadful mistake of actually wearing a wire, given what I know now about this individual, Joseph Mifsud, and given what the world knows, many reporters have been digging into his past, and his own lawyer has made unambiguous statements about who he is, and that is that this man was no Russian agent. This man was working on behalf of Western intelligence and was actively, uh, probably under the guidance of the FBI itself, when he was interacting with George Papadopoulos. Now, the point many make is the investigation apparently started on July 31st because of some comments. Um, Devin Nunes has come out recently and stated that we have evidence today that suggests that the FBI had an open investigation into the Trump campaign by late 2015, early 2016. I joined the campaign in March of 2016. I did not meet Alexander Downer until much later in the summer. So the foundation... I, I think FBI agent, former FBI agent Pete Strzok has testified that it was opened in that... And former FBI director James Comey testified that it, the investigation was opened at that point in, in late July. They did, and that's why Devin Nunes's uh, testimony or his remarks recently were very problematic because either Devin Nunes is lying or these individuals are lying. You can't have it either way. Um, I do uh, explain, in my, and, 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 it, and it goes with the theory that if Joseph Mifsud was actually a Western intelligence asset, as uh, the overwhelming public 
evidence suggests, let alone the private testimony of his own lawyer, why was I meeting with this person? Why was this person interacting with me in March, April, May of 2016? Why did a woman, as I explained in my book, because there was this misunderstanding of how I even met Joseph Mifsud, where did I meet him? Was I part of a secret plan by the Trump campaign to introduce me to him, to get Russia involved? It seems much sort of simpler than that, the it, way you lay it out. Yeah, in, the, in the book. And, much more, and much more different <clears throat> than what was actually reported previously. Um, I explain in, the, in my book, Deep State Target, uh, the facts. And the facts are a woman named Arvinder Sambe who was representing the, U- the FBI in the UK. You could Google, anyone watching this program could Google her right now, and had a personal relationship with Bob Mueller after 9-11, was the intermediary between myself and a suspected Russian agent, apparently. That what was the story. Now, it, it just doesn't make sense. I don't understand um, why the FBI uh, told the world that this was a Russian agent when the truth is that I was introduced to him by an FBI intermediary. I met him at a Western intelligence spy school in Rome, and that this man's entire career and network um, involves himself meeting with high-level British and American intelligence officials, including after I told the FBI that he was a potential Russian agent. So my story, um, and as many people will understand as they're reading Deep State Target, is mirrored in the gray zone. Um, Joseph Mifsud is hiding. He hasn't been seen in two he years. He hasn't publicly. He hasn't spoken publicly in two years. It adds to the mystery, the intrigue. Why is this man hiding? How is he allowed to remain hidden for so long? Uh, my current understanding is the Senate is very, very interested in learning much more about him. And when I go and testify next month in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, we'll be looking, they'll probably have many more questions about him post Mueller report, which I find very interesting. So you talk about um, the conversation you had with him when he did tell you that uh, Russia seemed to have dirt on Hillary Clinton. In in the book, I think you talk about being horrified at yes. the time. Uh, take us back to that, what, what was going through your head. Sure. Um, so it's important for me to lay out the sequence of events leading up to that meeting with him because I only had around four meetings or so with him, so they're not that many. I meet him at Rome, in Rome, uh, at Link Campus University. It's a spy school in which David Ignatius himself has written about it in the Washington Post um, that handles CIA, FBI symposiums and trains these types of individuals. Um, he uh, then introduces me falsely to a young lady in London approximately a week after my initial meeting with him, who he describes as the niece of Vladimir as Putin. Niece. Yeah. I to this day I never understood why he why would he why he would way. introduce <clears throat> this young lady as the niece of Vladimir Putin when Putin himself has no siblings. Um, and why I make the case clear was the company I was working at in London, the London Center for International Law Practice, which also Arvinder Sambe, the, key, the link between Mifsud and I, was going along with it. They were telling me, George, go ahead, go to the Holborn Hotel and meet with Putin's niece. They're waiting for you. It's going to be great for you. And they only try to introduce you after you have joined the campaign. Yes, and they, intru- they try and do this all after I joined the campaign. And that was part of my charge, that I didn't tell the FBI that this was happening when I was part of the campaign. Now, after because that... Because you forgot, or...? Because I didn't have my phone, my schedule in front of me, and the key thing is I should have done two things. One, brought a lawyer, and two, I uh, said, I don't remember, and let me get back to you. If I simply said that, the world probably would have never... <laughs> the world probably <laughs> yeah. would have never heard the name George Papadopoulos outside of some very small, snobby energy circles that I was dealing in for all my career. Um, so, so that's how that's a fade for you, right? Um, so, I was actively, and I want to make it clear, I was actively trying to leverage what I thought were these men's connections to Russia, because I believed it was in the interest of the campaign for cam- or candidate Trump to meet with Vladimir Putin. You believed it was a, a primary object, foreign policy objective yes, of the campaign. Yes. By the time I joined the Trump campaign, Donald Trump had been espousing for months 
the need to work with Russia at a geopolitical level, economic level, to combat ISIS. Remember, ISIS at that time was the headline, um, and many other reasons. So, of course, when I joined, I said to myself, okay, I'm 28 years old. Uh, I'm in the room now with senators, congressmen, men in their 60s who have about 40 years of experience on me. Um, Yes, I have an interesting background, but maybe other people have connections to the Middle East like I do. How am I going to separate myself? I need to do this. And that ambition... And you were based in London at the time. And I was based in London. And and I was based in London. It would have made it a little easier to meet if I needed. And that was my reasoning. That was the logic behind this foolish attempt, which I now call foolish, um, attempt to try and arrange this meeting and the events and the circumstances surrounding that attempt are what make my book um, unfold like a spy thriller. Um, And after that meeting with Putin's fake niece, I thought, you know, I was at the top of the world. You know, I just joined the hottest campaign in town. Um, I'm meeting Italian diplomats in Rome. I'm introduced to this interesting character, Joseph Mifsud. This you mid- thought you were going to make things happen for yes, this campaign. Yes, he's telling me he's going to introduce me to the world, uh, to the State Department, to the Vietnamese Prime Minister, who's a good friend of his. Uh, you know, I was meeting Vincenzo Scotti in Link Campus. He was the former Italian foreign minister. Everything was beautiful. Everything seemed seamless. And in politics, nothing's ever <laughs> so perfect. That's why... Um, But in my uh, world, I felt that things were just perfect and that this is my chance. So I met Putin's fake niece. Of course, I didn't know at the time. And that's part of the charging document against me, that I was under the impression that this was all real, which is also very concerning, but I'll get to that later. Um, So after he introduced me to this young lady, who he called Putin's niece, I asked him, I want to... When are you going to introduce me to the Russian ambassador? I want to get a diplomat for dinner or to meet him for coffee um, so that I could, A, see if this guy is telling the truth. Start establishing more official And two, establish more official communications for this uh, pie-in-the-sky idea I had uh, about connecting Vladimir Putin to Trump. Okay. Now, he never did. He never introduced me to any Russians, even though... He did introduce you to someone at, connected to the he introduced uh, Ministry me, of He introduced Affairs. me to a young guy, a young analyst named Ivan Timofiev over email, uh, who's a think tank analyst. It's not the hardest guy in the world to connect to, to especially to. if uh, you apparently know Putin's niece. Um, so things didn't connect to me. Okay. Things started to not make sense. But he did seem to have sort of information that was probably somewhat close hold within the Kremlin in terms of Russia having emails. Okay, but that's the, that's the point. And this is, that's the next point I was going to make. So th- I wanted to give the viewers the context of the events surrounding and leading up to that momentous day lunch at uh, the Andes Hotel in London. Because people always ask me, how couldn't you have told anyone what he told you? And right. so you have to understand the mindset of my that I was under. He failed to introduce me to anyone of substance in Russia. He introduces me to Putin's fake niece, right. who I even questioned her over email if she was the same person I was communicating with in London. Because her English, and I explained it in my book... Yeah, it seemed a lot better than... Se- was rudimentary at best in person in person yet over emails apparently whoever i was talking to was describing herself as an intermediary between the kremlin and washington um she knows the russian ambassador she's going to be the point woman in fluent english and i kept waiting okay you're so well connected why are you not actually introducing me so you could see how I wasn't feeling very confident in the situation I was in. As I'm distancing myself from Joseph Mifsud because of all these failed meetings and these uh, uh, failed attempts of him to connect me to anyone of real substance, we meet for lunch uh, at the Andes Hotel by Liverpool Street Station. And he's giddy. He's happy. He's emailing me the week before. I'll be in Moscow uh, attending uh, a meeting at the Duma which is uh, apparently the equivalent of the U.S. Congress. And 
I said, that's fine, okay. You're going to the meetings, but where are my meetings <laughs> kind of yeah. thing, okay? Yeah. And at that time, there was speculation around the world that Hillary Clinton's State Department emails might have been hacked. That's just a fact. Um, he gets to me and he tells me, I've learned information that the Russians possess thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails. And he tells me this information, and I'm thinking two things at the same time. One, is he confirming a rumor? Or two, is he uh, somebody who really knows something and should I distance myself from him? And That's it's, what you were thinking. Yeah, and it's time. an awkward situation to be in because you're thinking two d- disparate things at the same time. Real or fake? Fake, real, yeah. gray, sure white. You, 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 don't, you don't know what's happening. Um, why would he be telling me this? I was thinking at the same time in front of a public place like a very a five-star hotel in London instead of in a secret room somewhere, you know, and especially if you're a very well-connected person. Okay. Um, so I absorbed it. I was taking this in my mind. And and you uh, talked about it, or you sort of moved on to a different topic? And, and I asked him, uh, who told you? And he said, they told me. And he was pointing at himself, meaning the Russians, never giving me details. Okay. okay, even though he was telling me he was in, in Moscow and he met at the Duma, but he never prov- provided a name. I wish, you know, he did, <laughs> but he never did. Um, and then, uh, you know, I say to myself, that's very interesting. Now, what happens after this meeting with Joseph Mifsud on April 26th? Uh, around three days later, I'm invited to give an interview to the Times of London. Um they call the London Center for International Law Practice, and they say, uh, would Mr. Papadopoulos like to come and discuss candidate Trump's worldview and, you know, just get to know you a little better? You're one of the few advisors. I'm one of the few advisors. advisors. Let's, let's figure out what's happening right now with you. We have a wonderful lunch in Mayfair um, for two hours, and then the last question is something along the lines, should David Cameron apologize to Donald Trump regarding his comments about him being stupid, divisive, and racist or something like that. And um, basically the end result of that interview was that Trump advisor states that David Cameron should apologize. That's to, the headline. That's the headline, even though that's, yeah. it was sensationalized, but it was, it was funny. Pierce Morgan was calling me for an <laughs> interview. Uh, BBC, it was all, you know, chaos ensued. And this was just a few days after you had heard about the emails. Exactly. At that point, you had not told anybody about no, the no, emails. No, 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 no. And, and th- there's a reason I'm, I'm characterizing these events. It's not simply just to go through the book, but there's mm-hmm. a real reason for this, so that we understand what led up to my meeting with Alexander Downer. And I try and explain it very well in the book, but I want people to listen from my own voice as well. Um, at the day after that interview, two, mem- two intelligence officers from the U.S. Embassy, Terrence Dudley and Gregory Baker, contact me on via my email. How they received my email, I don't know. But they wanted to meet with me. And they were probing me. We know your background. We know who you are. Um, what's Trump thinking about Russia? And they were making some sort of remarks that I'd be the perfect man for intelligence and that they have men that they want to introduce me to. You do have to. a good background for it. I, I, you know, I do. And I did. And that's why... I guess I was the target <clears throat> of so many different situations and characters and governments. Um, I mean, you do mention the two of them in your book, yeah. and I think I, you quoted, you referenced this interview that one of them gave with the Daily Caller, where they talk, They told the Daily Caller that they were, quote, more fascinated uh, from the standpoint of trying to figure out what, what his game was, who's funding him here in London. Yeah, and, and and I obviously have a very different story, and I and I have evidence that substantiates my contentions about these two. The, so you think they weren't just kind of curious about who you were? They they had an ulterior motive. No, these individuals not only were whining and dining me as if I was Marilyn Monroe or some model, <laughs> you know, in the tune of fancy lunches, thousands fancy of dollars, okay. in which I, you know, uh, that. Even my wife rarely gets, and she kills me for it. But, you know, they wanted to find out what my background was, how I'm involved, and how they can use me to get into the campaign. 
And these are two active intelligence officers of the U.S. Embassy in London. So it's not just they're interested in a job and trying to pump you for information? Well, the idea that they would be seeking a job on a campaign while they were actively working for so the state... A job of, in the administration post Well, at that point... Election. But at that point, let's assume that's true. That's unethical for them. And I, I believe it's even potentially illegal for intelligence officials to be communicating with civilians and discussing internal campaign um, issues and asking to join a campaign and a transition team while they were working for the previous or the current administration at that time. Um, not only that, they end up introducing me to uh, CIA officials and other intelligence officials of the United States in Athens, and they stay very close to me over email, um, LinkedIn, about their intention to join the transition team and the campaign throughout the inauguration. Okay. So I completely disagree with their with version their of events that they stated, and okay. I have the evidence that suggests that I'm telling the truth and they're not. Um, so after they come into my life, I'm then emailed by none other than a young woman who I had met in, in April named Erica Thompson. And I had met her through an Israeli diplomat named Christian Cantor, who described her as his girlfriend. Okay. Um, I found it odd that two intelligence officers from different countries were dating, let alone meeting me at the same time in London over beer and drinks. So uh, you don't think they were actually dating? No, absolutely not. <clears throat> and I and I've and I have uh, and I think evidence is going to come out soon that I'll explain later on of why I believe that was something a little more nefarious than a simple let's meet my girlfriend situation. This same lady, Erica Thompson, after the intelligence officers meet me, and I had been meeting her in April, messages me around May 4 or 5 and says, would you like to meet with Alexander Downer? He is currently the, Aust he was Australia's representative in London. Yes, he is Australia's representative in London, and um, he is around 68 years old, used to be the foreign minister of Australia for, I think, 17 years, um, ran the intelligence services of Australia for decades, um, and is obviously Australia's most senior diplomat. So I found it odd that he would want to meet with me. But you were sort of the only representative of the Republican Party's presidential nominee. I was, <clears throat> but I'll explain later on why even countries in which I had established connections to such as uh, Israel or Cyprus or Egypt, um, it was hard to even meet their ambassadors. <laughs> <laughs> so why is this one okay. contacting you? It was even hard okay. to meet, or even the Japanese, for example. And I'll get to that, how I had brokered a meeting between Trump and the Japanese prime minister until Steve Bannon shot it down. <laughs> um, they never let me meet their ambassador, even though I was discussing introducing their prime minister to the candidate. So I'm trying so for the people watching the show, I want them to understand how hard it is to meet an ambassador. To get anyone's attention. To get anyone's attention. Okay. I don't it doesn't matter if you're a foreign policy advisor. There's <laughs> always someone higher up in the food chain than you. And you don't need Alexander Downer to meet George Papadopoulos in London. You have a ambassador in Washington who could easily meet a Trump official in DC. So for everyone so people understand. And I say, of course, this is an Australian diplomat. He's an ally. I'd be happy to meet him. Let's see what he has to talk about. At the time, I didn't know that he had close ties to Hillary Clinton. I didn't realize his intelligence background. Um, but I get to this meeting, as I explain in my book, Deep State Target, and it's anything but a friendly meeting with an ambassador. Um, the narrative that had been, I don't want to use the extreme verb of propagated, but the narrative that was, let's say, written about for for the last two years was that we were drunk in a bar, okay? The reality is I'm sitting down in front of Alexander Downer and Erica Thompson, the young lady, his assistant or whatever she was, and within 30 seconds of shaking his hand, he's demanding that I... Uh, tell Donald Trump to leave his good friend David Cameron alone and that I, George Papadopoulos, should stop bothering David Cameron. 
Because well, he's probably just responding to. It sounds like something. Uh, it's true, but this is, an this is an Australian diplomat. Yeah. I don't understand what involvement mm -hmm. he has with UK internal affairs or the UK US relationship. So uh, I'm sitting there dumbfounded um, initially. Okay. Um, and I'm questioning what I'm doing with this person. He orders some gin and tonic to calm the situation. <laughs> By that time. Because I think we got off on the wrong foot, I told okay. myself. Let's get drinks and hopefully things calm down. Yeah. Things became even more bizarre. Okay. He begins to take his phone out and hold it up to me like this and look into my eyes and just question me as he's holding his phone up to me. You think he's recording you? I, I do. And, I, and later on I'll explain how I actually reported him to the FBI and Bob Mueller. So I guess we both reported each other. <laughs> That's something that people don't understand because I haven't been able to talk about this actual event. So I guess we both found each other very odd at this meeting. Uh, but we both <laughs> we both uh, reported one another. But uh, before I get into that part, um, I'm we're talking about everything except the U.S.-Australia relationship. Okay. We're talking mm -hmm. about my background in the energy business, my background with the Israelis, um, what I'm advising Trump on in the Middle East, and why my ideas are so horrifying and wrong. And I, and I'm not. While he's pulling he's his phone why did, out, why did you take this meeting with me? Why he's pulling his phone out while he's acting bizarre? He's belligerent. You know, I'm not enjoying my gin and tonic. We should have had wine. It's a wine bar. <laughs> and I leave that meeting thinking, not only did this guy spy on me, um, but that meeting was taken under a false pretext. He had no, re no reason to talk to me about the U.S.-Australia relationship. He wanted something else. But I didn't understand at the time. This is <laughs> May 2016, before we now know what we now know. Um, I eventually decided to report him to the FBI and Bob Mueller. Um, after your initial after my, interactions. After my official interactions. <clears throat> and I will never... Because they asked me about him. And I said, look, he was spying on me. He was recording me. What do you mean he was recording you? And I pulled my phone up, like I just did here, and I told him this is what he did. And they looked at me, meaning the prosecutors and the FBI, like, how did you know? How do you know this? Confirming to me that this person was doing something bizarre and spying on me, potentially. Um, now, it gets into the question of what President Trump has recently been discussing, and that's the FISA. The foreign, yeah. To, just to yeah. go back one, in the book you say that you have no memory of telling yeah. him about the dirt that Russia possessed. I have zero memory of talking about dirt. He himself has contradicted himself at least three times in subsequent interviews he's given. Um, he has actually said he talked about emails. In another, in another email uh, interview, he said, no, he never talked about emails. He said dirt. In another interview, he said, he said, I believe he said dirt, but Trump was not involved. He's contradicted himself many times. Um, the BBC asked him point blank, did you spy on George Papadopoulos? And he'd never said no. If he wasn't spying, he could easily say, of course not. It's absurd. Why? I'm a diplomat. He never said no. This is public record. You could look at it. You, whoever's watching this right now can watch his interview and you'll see. Now, why is this part so important? During my testimony to the House Oversight Committee, there were questions about Alexander Downer. And this, rec and this is public. Whoever is interested could read the 236-page uh, transcript. Yes, And understand why not only are my, were my suspicions likely correct that he was spying and up to probably something no good when he was meeting with me, um, but in my interactions with Congressman Mark Meadows and the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, I tell them, look, this I felt he was spying. And they were basically relaying the message to me that you're right. This wasn't a diplomat passing along sensitive info and doing his job. He was up to something no good. And that ties into uh, what I believe is the reason that the Australian government is so adamant that President Trump does not declassify the FISA uh, warrants. And people were scratching their... So you their... think there was a FISA warrant on your communications? Yes, and, I'm, and I was told 
of that, and I explain who told me that in my book. You talk about a couple of reporters mentioning it Yes, to you. yes. That but it's never actually been publicly reported. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Um, in my congressional testimony, I say the same thing, and I'm being nodded at that there's that this is classified information. A FISA warrant is never supposed to be revealed. But uh, in the era that we live in, <laughs> these are not normal times. And the president himself yesterday stated that he will be declassifying FISA documents, plural. Um, Did your lawyers ever ask the prosecutors if, if they had any my, surveillance records on you? My understanding is that they told them no. Um, as I explain in my book... However, by the time the FBI interviewed me the first time, I had friends frantically calling me, telling me that the FBI was showing them surveillance photos of me in meetings they were interviewing my friends with. Okay. So I was at, under surveillance, um, and I give those details in my book of what my friends, colleagues were telling me at the time. Where the FBI they was, went and talked to all of your they friends. talked to business <laughs> associates, friends. Uh, I'm surprised I, I'm even married at this point <laughs> because I was viewed as somebody with borderline leprosy by the time the FBI was talking to everyone. So I was under surveillance. It's unquestionable. There were surveillance photos shown. I was never told this. My lawyers were never told anything. As far as I learned, the FBI just came to my house in January 2017 and then decided to get a warrant after that but nothing before that. Um, so uh, I believe, as I stated, um, if there was something nefarious in my file regarding Russia collusion, me even discussing what Alexander Downer's alleging, the last thing a man like Congressman Mark Meadows, who is the top ally of President Trump, would be doing is tweeting about my file and why President Trump should declassify mm -hmm. it which he has. Congressman Mark Meadows has been tweeting for the last two or three months about this. And now we also had the Australian government and the British government call President Trump and ask him to please not declassify. I, I don't know what the reasoning was behind President Trump's decision yesterday to decide that he's going to declassify these documents. Is it a coincidence that my congressional testimony was released the same day as my book release? And then two days later, Donald Trump says this? I don't know. It could be coincidence. It might not be. Maybe it was... Speaking of timing, great timing on yeah. publishing the book Thank the you. same week that yeah. uh, I mean, uh, the Mueller report findings <laughs> come out. I mean, uh, I mean, for me, of course, it's, it's great timing. And it not only is it great timing, I think um, it now demands further examination. Because if this book had come out before Mueller delivered his report and said that there was no collusion, there might have been some people questioning my conclusions. Okay, that's interesting, but the report's not out yet. The report is out. There was no collusion. Therefore, what was the basis of having members of Trump's campaign under surveillance using the most invasive form of surveillance, the FISA warrant? Why were people going to jail um, and why were you explaining to the world that they were connecting to Russians? When there was no overwhelming or any evidence, I guess, no of so, that. So, so, the so the point I'm making is because of those conclusions now, my book, I believe, should be very well analyzed, very well, um, you know, read. And it coincides exactly with what I testified to Congress about. Um, and I truly believe that, the, that this book, Deep State Target, will likely act as a pamphlet moving forward for a potential new investigation that both President Trump and his allies in Congress are demanding. So you are probably getting this question a lot um, these past few days, but so uh, Special Counsel Mueller has wrapped up. What we've seen is um, four or five sort of senior Trump advisors have admitted to, have not been charged with any conspiracy, but have admitted to misleading the FBI about uh, their contacts with Russians, Russian officials, Russian intermediaries. What do you think that says about the campaign? Why have there been so many people that lied about these contacts? Well, that's a good question, and it goes to the root of what I believe was government corruption in my case. I, if, my, if my lie was material, 
meaning I was actually lying about a Russian agent, as the FBI explained to the world, why has this man's lawyer come out and said the exact opposite? I don't know that they explicitly called him a Russian agent. They they just said that he had gotten information from, that he was close, understood to have close ties to Russia and gotten information from a trip to Russia. But even that aside, if his lawyer, who knows him better than probably anyone in the world, is telling the world that he was a Western intelligence asset and working under the guidance of the FBI, why would George Papadopoulos be charged with a material lie about a Western intelligence asset? This is the key question of my case. Why was I sent to prison over something that I detail in my book seems manufactured, orchestrated, pre-planned, and, um, you know, uh, even the FBI in my meeting with them in December, I give this inside account of my only meeting I had with them at the Mueller offices, where I ask them in a very naive way, why are you not arresting Joseph Mifsud? I told you a year ago that this man told me about Russian emails, and now I'm, I see pictures of him online with the UK's foreign minister, Boris Johnson, in London. Haven't you notified MI6, the MI5? And the FBI agents are laughing at me. They're telling me this is what happens when you don't wear the wire when we tell you, and he's a man of many connections. At that moment, I knew I was set up. Unfortunately, I had pled guilty two months before. And they do say in your sentencing document that they had wanted to question him further when he was in the U.S. and missed the opportunity to? Okay, that, I, <laughs> that sentence that you just referenced um, resulted in dozens of calls from many outlets actually mocking the special counsel, to me off the record from many journalists in this country, because uh, I don't understand what else I could have possibly done except tell the FBI two weeks before this man, Joseph Mifsud, is in Washington, D.C. at a State Department-sponsored conference, Mm -hmm. by the way, that he told me that the Russians have Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, Is it it, uh, the FBI's assertion that they did not vet a Russian asset two weeks before he was speaking on panels with congressmen and members of the U.S. State Department? Is it their assertion that they were allowing a Russian asset to speak in Saudi Arabia at conferences with Ash Carter, the U.S. Secretary of Defense under the previous administration, which Joseph Mifsud was? This is all public record. It's, it's damning. It's, um, it's horrifying. Um, it's, uh, I think it really gets to the core of whether we can now trust our institutions in this country to preserve both Americans' liberty and the rule of law, whether the government will seek to entrap an American citizen in a false story if they're going after a larger target. Maybe President Trump was the eventual target, as I explain in my book. But I believe my case at the end of this saga, I don't know where it's going to lead, is going to do more damage to the FBI's reputation and uh, the special counsel's investigation and potentially the leadership of the FBI than any uh, benefits of putting George Papadopoulos in prison in Oxford, Wisconsin, eating chicken wings (laughs) for for 11 days. That's my assertion. I make my claim, my uh, case very clear in Deep State Target of why I believe that. And um, at this point, I'm just leaving uh, it up to the readers and the American public to decide for themselves um, what happened here, who they believe, who they don't, and let them do their own due diligence and examine my case and the entire last three years a little differently from a different perspective. So you do um, sort of find that the, the genesis of, say, Western yeah. authorities' interest in you is in p- policy positions you took um, involving an energy pipeline in the Mediterranean, and that was um, not something that the Obama State Department was interested in. And you specifically mention um, the former ambassador to Azerbaijan, uh, Matthew Breiza, right? Yes. You mentioned running into him at a conference and feeling a little, um, feeling from him that he felt threatened by you. Yes. So that, most people have not yet responded to... um, what you say in the book about them, but I did call him, and he, I read him the passages, and he said that 
he felt that you were reading too much into your interactions with him and that he was surprised to see you at this conference only because you were both from Chicago and he thought funny running into someone else from Chicago at this obscure conference on the other side of the world. An obscure conference in which the <coughs> U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Manez was speaking at? An obscure conference in which the uh, uh, top advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other U.S. State Department officials were speaking at? It sounds very similar to uh, to uh, the U.S. intelligence officers telling the Daily Caller that they wanted to meet me to understand how I'm paying for my life in London. I'll leave it at that. Okay, so you don't you think it? You don't think they're being honest? No, and and look, I and I explain it in my book. I mean, I was meeting with prime ministers, presidents, foreign ministers, defense ministers of these countries. At the time, at 25 years old, I yeah. was meeting one-on-one with foreign ministers talking about my ideas. I wasn't meeting with a junior commercial attache at an embassy in Washington. Um, throughout the time of my work at the Hudson Institute, uh, as an energy consultant in London, on the Ben Carson campaign, on the Donald Trump campaign, the readers will understand that I was not a obscure, random person that the media falsely characterized me as, but a person who had deep-rooted connections to the previous administration, State Department, including people like Matthew Breiza, David Kovacic, uh, who I explain, um, foreign ministers. And of course, when you're promoting an idea that's, uh, that began at a conservative think tank, at like the Hudson Institute, when you're a, city, when you're a democratic sitting administration, of course people are going to look at you. And when you compound that I was dealing in a very sensitive part of the world and in a new field and industry, such as energy discovered for the first time offshore Israel, of course it's going to put a target on you. There was a lot of interest, Mm -hmm. including from Alexander Downer, uh, from Joseph Mifsud, and we haven't even gotten to talk about Stefan Halper, who paid me $3,000 to hear my ideas on that particular issue. So the, th- this is the evidence I use to make my, cl- my case, my claims of why I was a deep state target, what the deep state was, why they were interested in me, and why, in my final estimation, I was forced to plead into this agreement and targeted by the FBI to basically cover up the real story. And that was entrapment by my own government and by Western intelligence operatives and countries themselves. So you, I think you said publicly earlier this week that you, your lawyers have uh, filed seeking a pardon. Is, is that accurate? Yes. My lawyers um, are looking out for my best legal interests. Um, they are responsible for this. That's why they're my lawyers and they're excellent lawyers. And they're looking to see how George Papadopoulos will recover legally from this. And they believe, um, now that we know new facts about my case, my story, that there's a justified reason for my pardon potential. Um, I am not involved in this, of course. It's a legal proceeding. There's legalities involved that I'm not involved in. Um, I have made it clear that if I'm offered a pardon, I would accept it, but I'm not expecting one. And so why don't you talk a little bit about how you came to decide to put this all in a book. It, it seems like it came together pretty quickly. Um, it took six months. Um, it, it started with me watching the news like you started this conversation. The world heard the name Papadopoulos in October of 2017, and it became a household name for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I wish it was the right reasons, but unfortunately I was mischaracterized. Uh, I was called a traitor, a a treasonous person, um, a guy up to no good. And not only was I a guy up to no good, I was now trying to undermine my former boss, Donald Trump, to save myself. There was no worse combination that I could have been viewed in uh, in front of the American public in the world. And I told myself, um, I can't allow this to happen. I understand I'm under a gag order now. Um, And then my girlfriend at the time, Simona, who knew my story 
and because she has actually many common connections. Right. And I explained them Did in the book Deep State Targets yeah. <laughs> that she actually is probably one of the most informed people in America about Joseph Mifsud. And that's actually why she was under the scrutiny of the FBI for other reasons. And if we have time, I could probably get into that as well. And she decided to take the risk to go public and to start throwing hints out about who George is. Coffee boy? No, he's not a coffee boy because I know he's not. And just throwing these tad bits that he had nothing to do with Russia. And that effort by her actually got her under the spotlights. And she was subpoenaed by Mueller. The FBI went after her, were questioning her, and basically trying to scare her to leave. But fortunately, she didn't. And uh, I, I really um, think that she's responsible for the, for the beginning of me thinking about eventually writing a book. Because if it wasn't for her, quite frankly, I don't think this book would have existed. Um, I actually firmly believe it would not have existed. Um, my name probably would have been a two-week story. It really would have a been footnote a footnote in history. history. All of this in these over 200 pages would have just never come to the surface. And who knows what my life would have been today. Fortunately, life uh, threw me a life vest, <laughs> I guess. She yeah, came into my life. She uh, was very powerful, very strong. And by the time I was able to speak publicly myself, people were looking into my case a little closer. And they started to notice that 2 plus 2 didn't equal 4 in my case. And that's why I decided that, you know what, because I understand how off the reporting has been about me, and now that I seem semi-credible because I had a wonderful person representing me on TV, my girlfriend and now wife, I can write a book, get the story out. I have the facts on my side. I have evidence. I have emails, documents that substantiate everything I've written in this book, including a congressional testimony now right. that's been recently <clears throat> released and hopefully a declassified file by the president. Um, so that was really the logic behind this. It took a, a while. Um, did, was I afraid to ever release this information? Some of, at some point I was. This is very sensitive information I've released. Um, spies have been exposed. Informants have been exposed in my story. Uh, Western diplomats have been exposed and viewed in different angles now. Uh, allied governments are now questioning the president. Um, my story really, uh, I believe, um, is going to not close a parenthesis in this saga, but open up a new one. And uh, where that leads, uh, I think it depends on how much the president decides to declassify himself. The the day your case was announced, uh, unsealed, it was just hours after Paul Manafort and Rick Gates had been um, arraigned. Did, <clears throat> just to go back to that time, do you remember having any say in sort of the day it became public or that was all a special counsel decision? So I pled guilty, I believe, on October 5th. And um, I think my lawyers had told me that something's going to come. I know the FBI told my girlfriend at the time, Simona, after they subpoenaed her in October, you should leave him because a storm is coming. <laughs> and I didn't know what the storm was, except that my name would then be released later that month. So it was a pretty big tsunami that hit. Um, I'm surprised right. she stayed with me. And uh, I had, of course, no say. Um, something I've learned about the legal system in this country is uh, the defense team is playing and negotiating from a position of weakness versus the prosecutors who hold the ace up their sleeves. I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, this is something I've come to learn. And, uh, of course, uh, star prosecutors like Bob Mueller's team, of course, are stars in their own uh, respectable fields for a reason. Um, so the answer, the short answer is, of course, I had nothing to do with when they released my name. Um, it was probably to sensationalize the headlines a lot more that while two men are indicted, this relatively unknown guy is guilty. Why him? It was probably more for a psychological purpose uh, to make the president squirm a bit or, you know, let the media, you know, cover it from, for days and days and days and days like they did. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I wasn't responsible for that. And just as a final question, sure. uh, you plan to vote for President Trump in 2020? 
Um, if President Trump continues to do great things for the economy like he is and uh, continues to be um, a force for good around the world, like I believe he is, including um, working closely to find peace on the Korean Peninsula, um, actively and under the radar negotiations like he recently did in India and Pakistan that resulted in the ceasefire, um, promoting tariffs against China, for, um, I probably will vote for him and I expect to vote for him again. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I liked it a lot.